are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha. Today, we have Professor Alexander Bluskullen from Moscow with us again on our podcast. Um, welcome, Professor Bluskullen. How are you doing? Uh, thank you. I'm well, and I'm very glad to have a dialogue with you. Same here. Last time you were here, we were talking about Belarus situation. And I guess it's been over a year. And now I guess the important situation is the Ukraine situation. I don't know if you've seen the film Ukraine on Fire. We had the director on to speak about how he filmed it. It was a very good film. But we were not able to get into a lot of the historical details about the Soviet Union, Tsarist Russia, and how the area we now know as Ukraine developed through histories and its economic base and things like that. So I'm glad to have you on to talk about this. Thank you for invitation. And uh, really, it is very important to remember about historical backgrounds and uh, economic social foundations not only to follow to the political events, military uh, events, and so on. Uh, and uh, as professor, I want to talk more about these uh, fundamental, but I think very important questions, actual questions. So first of all, uh, Ukraine became a territory and space for wars and conflicts uh, from the very beginning. And I don't know when this beginning uh, was in history, maybe 10th century, maybe earlier. But uh, it was uh, conflicts between different um, states, including Poland, including other European countries, including Russia, uh, in different forms and uh, so on. Ukraine became part of Russian Empire uh, in 17th century. And it was initiative of Ukrainian leaders, not initiative from Russia, uh, because Ukraine had very long and very bloody conflict with uh, Poland. But really, it was a very complex story. So from 17th century, Ukraine is part of Russia, but with different um, uh, changes in territory, in relations, and so on. I don't uh, hold on one second. Can I ask you a little bit about the treaty? Um, so there used to be a, like, I think this is around 1770-something. Uh, no, no, right? it was 17th century. I don't remember. Oh, 1600s. Uh, 1600s, yes. And it was permanent wars between uh, Kazakhs, uh, other peoples of uh, Ukraine, or better to say territory where Ukraine is now. It was wars with uh, Poland, uh, with Russia, between themselves and so on. And finally, leaders of Ukraine, Bogdan Khmelnytsky in particular, uh, had the agreement with Russian Tsar about uh, unification. So it was not a real occupation of Ukraine. But I'm not, historic, uh, I'm not specialist in historical details, so I just want to say that from 17th century, Ukraine became part of Russian Empire. And the Russian Empire was growing, and of course uh, it had the periphery, and of course periphery was exploited by the center. But it was a little bit strange situation when poor peasants in Russia were exploited not less than poor peasants in Ukraine. So it was really terrible. So the treaty we're talking about is the Pereslavska Rada. Rada. Yes, you are right, Pereslavska Rada. So, and in Kiev, uh, was and I hope, is uh, still a monument for Bogdan Khmelnytsky. I don't know this uh, the situation now in Kiev. So then... Uh, when, uh, Bogdan Khmelnytsky was, I guess, the leader of the Cossacks. He was a supporter of unification with Russia, yes. Uh, so, uh, when the uh, Russian Empire collapsed and uh, it was the uh, October Revolution, Socialist Revolution... 19, so now we've forwarded about 300 years. It's 1917. Yeah, we are coming to 20th century, yes, and in 1917. October 1917, uh, in Russian Empire took place a uh, revolution and majority of uh, Russian provinces uh, supported Soviet power. But then uh, civil war started. Uh, back in Tsarist Russia, they had, it wasn't, uh, the political boundaries weren't the same. They had gubernias and uh, uyas, yes, right? It was not such country as Ukraine at all. 
No, no, they had uh, gubernias. Uh, it was only regions of Russian Empire without any national uh, rights and so on. And uh, it was Russian language, uh, Russian bureaucracy and so on. So it was no independence uh, for Ukrainian people. And it was bad conditions for development of Ukrainian culture, literature, language, and so on. Um, may I ask you a question? Um, so Lenin did write something about the national question sometime in 1913. Was that the foundational philosophy that the Soviets used to, I guess, um, create? Yes, you are right. Inside Bolshevik party, they had a lot of discussions about uh, national model, model of national organization of future socialist state. And Lenin was supporter of the right of any nation for self-determination uh, and creation of independent state. Okay, what was Lenin's idea of what is a nation? So uh, it's uh, complex to say, but basically it was unity of uh, economy, unity of language, unity of culture and uh, historical backgrounds. Okay. And uh, language and culture were important, but economic unity, integration was also important. What is the economic unity? Uh, uh, many people don't understand this very much. So when you have a cooperation between enterprises, when you have reproduction of main resources and industries inside country. It was before globalization. It was another epoch exactly. <laughs> to take into the consideration. It was an epoch of internal development of capitalism. And in Russia, it was even internal development of uh, feudalism and capitalism. Actually, um, this week for our other show, Late Nights with Lenin, we are reading Development of Capitalism in Russia in 1899. So we're still learning about that. <laughs> yes. So, uh, and uh, some uh, nations uh, used this right for self-determination, and for example, Finland became independent state when Soviet, when Soviet Russia appeared. Uh, in Ukraine, uh, took place a lot of wars uh, during civil war. Uh, it was uh, occupation of Ukraine by Germans. Uh, it was uh, special nationalist groups uh, who made their own government in Ukraine. Uh, in Kyiv, uh, power was changed many times. It was Germans, then uh, Ukrainian nationalists, then Red Army and Bolsheviks, then again, so only in uh, early 20s. At least with my research, what I've noticed is that Britain, France, America, and Germany all decided to fund somebody else. And so then you got the Pilsudski and the Polish army yeah. invading, and then... You're absolutely right. It was invasion of uh, Pilsudski. It was in firstly invasion of uh, Kaiser army, German army. So then it was support of uh, anti-Soviet forces by Antanta, by Britain and other countries. So it's, uh, it was permanent and very bloody and deep conflict. But finally, peoples of Ukraine, especially poor people of Ukraine, supported uh, Soviet power, supported socialist trend of development, and uh, Ukraine became part of uh, Soviet Union in uh, 1922. Soviet Union, officially as Soviet Union, was created in uh, 1922, in December. In a few months, we will celebrate 100th anniversary of Soviet Union, by the way. So if we move further... Uh, Ukraine uh, firstly had the territories uh, uh, without uh, Donbass, this is southeast of Ukraine, and without uh, Crimea. Uh, these territories were not territories of Ukraine when it was created inside Soviet Union. When it was just an SSR, right? Yes, inside USSR, Ukraine, like Belarus, like Kazakhstan and so on, were republics. Republics with uh, big rights, uh, with uh, national government, with uh, uh, national schools, universities uh, in national language, in Ukrainian language, and so on. It was uh, in Soviet Union, from one hand, control from uh, central bureaucracy, but it was bureaucratic system everywhere. From another side, it was development of national culture, cinema, theater, schools. Uh, teaching was in Ukrainian and in Russian. And uh, it was the case everywhere. But what I want to stress, until late uh, 1920s, Donbass, Donetsk, Lugansk were not territories of the Ukrainian Republic inside Soviet Union. 
it was territories of uh, Russia, Russian Federation, and it was territories with uh, strong development of coal industry, steel industry, machinery, the most developed industrial regions of uh, south of our country. And uh, Bolsheviks decided that Ukraine is mainly agrarian country, and it's very important for the unity of uh, peasants and workers, industrial workers, to integrate Donbass into the Ukraine. And it was uh, artificially, not artificially, politically, uh, it was political initiative to make Donbass part of Ukraine, not part of Russia. Okay, do you see this poster from 1922? Yes, I see it, yes. It says Donbass Sredsi Rasi, which means the heart of Russia. Yes, it's uh, Russia, yes, it's true. And it was so, uh, and majority of population in Donbass, industrial workers, uh, were Russian-speaking people who has, of course, uh, relations with uh, Ukrainian people, but uh, they were part of Russia for ages and ages. Uh, and uh, then it became territory of uh, Ukraine and uh, in Soviet Union, but Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, and really it was not very important how this uh, territorial organization is uh, created. So when the Polish army invaded, they grabbed a little bit of the western area uh, that is known as Galicia for a while. And because they were under quote-unquote Polish occupation, there came this organization called the OUN, Organization of Ukrainian nationalists, and that was a little before the war, right? Yes, it's true. And um, it's another story about Western territories of Ukraine and Belarus, uh, because uh, former they were mainly territories of Russian Empire, but when Soviet Union was created uh, after war, uh, civil war and uh, war against Antanta, against Poland, against Germany, against Turkey, it was against everybody. Uh, everybody attacked Soviet Russia. Uh, so after that, part of former territories of Russian Empire became territories of Poland of other countries. And uh, it was Western Ukraine and Western Belarus. And uh, that, that's the story. And only one year before World War, not World War II, it was already World War II, but um, it was agreement between Hitler and uh, Molotov and Ribbentrop agreement, and Soviet Union uh, joined some territories of the Western Ukraine and Western Belarus and the Baltic republics, uh, Baltic states. It was states uh, in that period. So uh, this is another story. Uh, then about uh, World War II or for Soviet Union, Great Patriotic War. So. OUN was known for doing a lot of political assassinations of both Polish officials, Soviet officials, and I guess they were known to do a lot of terrorist operations. So uh, I will tell about this organization a little later, if possible. Okay, okay, no worries. Uh, It's better to talk uh, in the context of war, because the main activity was during war. They had historical backgrounds, but I am not... uh, I don't want to present you the history of Bandera movement. It's not oh, okay, 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 don't worry about it. I just wanted to say that there existed one that... Of course, uh, you are right. But um, generally speaking, what was a great patriotic war for Soviet people? First of all, it was war uh, against uh, the whole Europe mm-hmm. under the power of different types of fascism. Mm-hmm. I will remind for your listeners, Germany, uh, Nazi, Hitler... Italy, fascists, Mussolini, Portugal and Spain, fascists, uh, Poland occupied, uh, Central Europe. And also fascists before the occupation. Yes, uh, Pilsudski government was not maybe fascist, but very right-wing nationalistic, (laughs) bourgeois uh, state. So uh, Denmark, Belgium, everybody capitulated. Austria, part of uh, Germany, Czechoslovakia, it was Czechoslovakia, uh, no struggle against Germany uh, under the Germany. Hungary, semi-fascist dictatorship. Bulgaria, semi-fascist dictatorship. Romania, semi-fascist dictatorship. So all uh, Europe, uh, Croatia, completely fascist. Croatia, yeah, terrible fascist. <laughs> uh, 
So all Europe under the control of fascist forces. And this Europe uh, attacked uh, Soviet Union and all uh, nations, all republics of Soviet Union participated in the struggle against this uh, terrible fascist force. It's important. All nations, all countries, Central Asia, Central Russia, Ukraine, Caucasus, uh, Belarus, everybody. This is important. Yes, now your question. Oh, no, no. I was just going to make one statement, uh, which is that just so people understand, one million French citizens joined the uh, League of Anti-Bolshevik Fighters. So they were joined with Hitler. So it was definitely all of Europe against the Soviet Union. <laughs> By the way, I didn't mention about France. It was Maquis. It was partisan war against uh, fascists. But it was also some fascist uh, troops who were in the front against the uh, Soviet okay. Union. And it was the same for Belgium. It was the same for so-called democratic uh, bourgeois European states. Uh, they really capitulated without real fight uh, against Germany. And by the way, Belgium, Austria, Czechoslovakia together were more strong in 1939 than Germany. It was uh, very industrial countries with wonderful production of very good weapons, with big armies. So let's uh, talk about the story next time. So coming back, uh, all uh, nations of Soviet Union, all peoples of the Soviet Union were fighting against uh, Nazi and fascism. Of course, we had betrayers among Russians, among the Belarus people, among Ukrainians. And Ukraine was a country where we had a lot of Russians, Belarus people, peoples of different nations, Jews and so on. So, and among Belarusian, Ukrainian people, and Russian people, we had uh, a lot of people who became German policemen, who were in different troops and so on. But in Ukraine, it was uh, one of the most uh, intensive uh, centers of uh, this anti-Soviet struggle. And it was Bandera and other organizations who were officially or formally supporters of independent Ukraine. And uh, firstly, Hitler and his, uh, I don't know, generals, uh, politicians, promised to Bandera and other nationalists in Ukraine that uh, they will have independent uh, Ukraine. But of course, they never, I mean, Hitler never wanted to have Ukraine as independent states. Only part of the Reich, uh, part of the slaves uh, for Germans, for... General Plan Ost. Uh, race and so on, as, as everywhere. But what is important, uh, in many, many cases, uh, these nationalists, uh, Bandera and other nationalists, were fighting against Soviet Union. They killed a lot of citizens. Uh, I don't know, enormous amount of Jews, enormous amount of communists. All people who were fighting against fascism. They were more terroristic than even Germans, and it's uh, well known there are enormous amount of facts about that. They had some conflicts with Hitler, uh, but uh, inside Hitler, uh, I don't know, group of uh, ruling persons also, it was a lot of conflicts. They were uh, fighting between themselves, so it was part of this, uh, I don't know, like uh, snakes, you know, in one Mafia. place. Uh, maybe mafia, I don't know. So, uh, and uh, in Soviet Union, not only in Russia, but in Soviet Union, memory about Bandera and uh, all other nationalists, Ukrainian nationalists, Belarus, some nationalists, Russian uh, anti-Soviet forces, like Vlasov army, uh, Vlasov general betrayed. So, uh, people hated this uh, type of, uh, I cannot say even people, type of uh, Fascists. Fascists, yes, uh, because uh, they were responsible for millions of victims. 27 million. Yeah, but uh, generally, yes, the uh, Soviet Union lost uh, 27 millions uh, of people. So it was hateness and it was real basis and it was a struggle, but with law. By the way, after uh, when the war was finished in the late 40s, 1940s, in uh, forests, uh, it was movement of uh, some Bandera and other nationalist groups. Uh, and uh, for those who capitulated, uh, it was no punishment even. If they did not kill uh, citizens, 
even such decision was, by the way, in Stalin period. I don't like Stalin and his terrorism, but uh, the history is history. We here are very pro-Stalin. <laughs> okay, but uh, we have some differences, Asia. I know, I know. <laughs> just joking. Okay, I just wanted to show you this. This is a movie glorifying the Baltic SS called Forest Brothers. Yes, it's uh, similar with Forest Brothers in uh, Baltic states, yes. Yeah, and look at who's made this movie. Yes, uh, so it's, uh, I know a lot of facts. Uh, by the way, it was wonderful uh, movie, uh, very good movie made by Lithuanian uh, cinema makers in, inside Soviet Union. Nikto ne hotelo umirat. Nobody wanted to die. It was very... Uh, honest tragedy about this struggle and ex- with a very deep, I can say, moral explanation why uh, took place such a conflict. So that's very important, uh, very important prehistory. And after that, uh, Ukraine uh, was again, uh, like before war, uh, one of the republics of the Soviet Union. And some leaders of Ukraine were leaders of Soviet Union. And, for example, Nikita Khrushchev, who was uh, leader of Soviet Union in 1960s, was uh, from Ukraine. Yes. Brezhnev? Uh, Khrushchev. Nikita no, oh, Khrushchev. No, I know. Was Brezhnev yeah. also After Stalin, before Brezhnev. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. No, no. Got it. Khrushchev. Yes. And by the way, uh, Khrushchev also made decision to uh, join the, uh, Crimea to Ukraine in 1960s. I don't remember exactly the year, but it was in 1960s. And it was also artificial decision because Crimea uh, became part of Russian Empire in 18th century and never was uh, interconnected with Ukraine in any form. So they were, it was Tatar population in Crimea, but Crimea never was part of Ukraine uh, before collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, that's why I want to stress again and to summarize that uh, Donbass, uh, southeast uh, industrial territories of Ukraine, were historically part of Russia for the ages and ages. Only in late 1920s, they became uh, formally territory of uh, Ukraine as a republic inside Soviet Union. The same about Crimea, but uh, Crimea became part of the Ukraine uh, in 1960s, only in 1960s. This is important uh, prehistory. So in 1991, uh, Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, it's a big topic, why and uh, what's happened uh, with our country, but uh, now let's say Soviet Union as one country was disintegrated. And uh, independent territories, independent states, not territories, sorry, independent states appeared. And among this, uh, Ukraine, Belarus, uh, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, states in uh, Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and so on. And Russian Federation became uh, part of the Soviet Union in the frameworks uh, which were officially established inside Soviet Union. This is 1991. And after that, Ukraine became an independent state. But again, very important aspects. One half of population in Ukraine speaks Russian as main language. Typically, it's bilingual uh, territory. But uh, big part uh, prefer, 50% minimum, prefer Russian as a language for home communications, for official communications, for science, for education, for culture, and so on. Uh, second, uh, economically, uh, technologically, let's say, technology uh, of Ukraine was very interconnected with technologies in uh, Russia. It was one system of uh, division of labor including, by the way, Belarus and so on, but Ukraine was extremely integrated uh, on the technical level with Russia. Mm-hmm. It was very uh, negative process of disintegration, uh, and especially Donbass region, which was part of the industrial complex of uh, south of Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Kharkov and uh, Kursk, uh, Belgrade, all this cities, uh, regions were very integrated without any formal borders before. The same with population, families, and so on. This is important. 
Unfortunately, after collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, bureaucratic and bourgeois elites of every state became nationalists because it was the only basis to, how to say, to improve, to uh, increase their political power, their economic power, and to realize these terrible market capitalist reforms which took place uh, in 1990s in all our countries, uh, so-called shock therapy policy. And in Ukraine, it was a process of growth of nationalism, but not very uh, rapid and intensive in 1990. So we know for a fact, uh, the CIA admits this, that they helped smuggle a lot of the militants who used to be in the fascist military to Canada, US, wherever. I mean, in Canada, as we know, the Vice Prime Minister, Christopher Friedland, her grandfather, literally ran a fascist newspaper. So were these expatriates of Ukraine, did they play any role when the Soviet Union collapsed? And if so, what role? Honestly, I did not make special research of this question, but uh, what I know is uh, real participation of Canadian and other right-wing Ukrainian immigrants uh, in uh, increasing of nationalism and even Nazi trends inside Ukraine. It is the case, and they played a big role. And when Ukrainian nationalism started to grow up, it was necessary to find the heroes and to rewrite the history. We are talking about, uh, yes, 1990s, uh, 1990, uh, end of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. But especially the strengths were um, strong after that. It was the uh, 1990s, beginning of the 21st century, first decade of the 21st century. It was the growth of nations. It was the rehabilitation of Bandera and other Nazi and semi-fascist and simply fascist criminals, I can say, criminals who were responsible for the mass killings of uh, Soviet people, Jews, uh, Russians, Belarus, all nationalities, Ukrainians. So, and uh, of course, it was uh, very negative. Uh, I'm trying to find uh, polite words. Oh, no negative. need to be polite. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid that in English, my not polite words will be very... <laughs> okay, don't worry. Already. I am I am not specialist in not polite words in English. I'm sorry. In uh, Russian, okay. I, I actually don't know any not polite words in Russian, so... <laughs> yes. Uh, let's be inside uh, literary, uh, literal uh, language. Okay, so um, in 2004, uh, I, I guess you, okay, so the U.S. started doing these model of a coup called a color revolution, which was, it was to look like it was not a coup, but it was a coup. And wasn't Ukraine one of the first test subjects in 2004 with the, Orange Revolution? Uh, it was similar attempts in Georgia, uh, in Caucasus. Uh, so uh, I cannot say that Ukraine is a, a unique example. But what I want to stress, in Ukraine, yes, first attempt was 2004, then uh, Maidan in 2014. It was national, not, not national, internal basis for these so-called Orange Revolutions. But it was also very big support from the Western establishment, Western global capital, not Western global capital, but okay, global capital based mainly in the West. <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> okay, I understand. Yes, uh, so let's uh, talk about this global capital. Uh, and uh, one minute. And what is important? What kind of basis uh, was inside Ukraine for this nationalism and rehabilitation of it? First, it was the economic and political establishment oriented on the United States integration with United States, financial speculations with United States, and so on. They were receiving money, they were selling resources of Ukraine to European Union countries, to United States, other countries. And for this part of business, for this part of bureaucracy, it was profitable uh, politically, economically, to uh, increase uh, nationalist and even Nazi trends first. Nazi trends? Uh, trends. Uh, trends. Uh, T-R-E-N-D-S. Sorry. Sorry. Yes. Trends uh, and uh, tendencies. 
and uh, also among population. When country is in bad economic situation, and Ukraine uh, all time was uh, in bad economic situation, by the way, like Russia, maybe a little worse, maybe a little better, doesn't matter. So, and um, in Ukraine, uh, it was a lot of poor people who were starving. And wow. they, they didn't have a normal jobs, stable jobs. They didn't have normal pensions. Uh, they didn't have uh, wages enough for good life. And in this situation, it was necessary to find uh, who is responsible. Of course, uh, it was the capitalists uh, who were responsible. But uh, official propaganda said, look, Russians uh, were terrible people who exploited uh, Ukrainians all decades, all ages, from the very beginning, from when Jesus Christ was born, from (laughs) the uh, Russians started to explode the Ukrainian population. I'm kidding, of course, about Jesus Christ. No, no, uh, I I understand. Yes, but uh, it's uh, really terrible propaganda, so-called Russophobia, Russophobia in English, maybe. And it was basis for explanation why we are in bad situation, why we don't have industry, production, uh, development, and so on. Want to learn some context to current events? Get some history in your ears and eyeballs. Subscribe to our Substack and listen to scholars and journalists fill in the omissions in your corporate media diet. Go to historically.substack.com. It is what is to be done. So Ukraine had two stages of economic reform, or whatever they call it. And there was a I, I, almost a collapse, and then the uh, around 1999, and IMF had to step in and do the structural readjustment. And around that time came the nationalist propaganda. Uh, it's uh, yes, I just explained this, and also I want to stress that generally in uh, former Soviet states, uh, situation after collapse of the Soviet Union was not good at all. I will use some figures because I'm professor of economics, so so, so, a small piece of statistic. We love figures. Uh, So uh, in 1990s, it was a real collapse, Uh, 50% decline, approximately 50, little more, little less, 50, not 15, 50% decline. Five zero. Five zero. Uh, Decline of uh, production, uh, general GNP, gross national product. In Ukraine. Everywhere, in Russia, in Ukraine, in Georgia, it was even more than 70. Okay. It was everywhere. In uh, all uh, former republics of Soviet Union, we had decline of investments, or especially deep crisis in industry and so on. Uh, in Russia, situation was a little bit better because we had gas and oil. Mm-hmm. And when prices started to grow up and very r- rapidly, it was uh, in 2000, uh, this first decade of 21st century, it was up to $150 per barrel, and it was a dollar <laughs> 20 years ago. It was much more, much stronger than now. Uh, so it was very big money, and they created opportunity for uh, salvation of some social problems, for some big projects uh, and rebirth of some industries, and so on. So in Russia, situation became a little bit better in that period, and a little bit more order. Bureaucratic order, but order. Uh, in Russia, we had transformation from uh, terrible disorganization of, let's say, f- primitive accumulation of capital to the bureaucratic, oligarchic bureaucratic capitalism of semi-periphery countries. So it was not very good, uh, better to say it was bad, but it was better than it was before. Not as bad as before. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. In Ukraine, uh, situation was worse. They had uh, grain for export, they had coal for export, uh, steel, by the way, mainly steel and coal, it is Donbass, southeast of Russia, where now we have all this conflict. And the steel and coal industry depend kind of on each other in that you need coal to burn for steel and so on. Yes, of course. Finally, what we have, uh, average growth uh, during 30 years in Russia was 1% per year, 1% per year. Really stagnation, 30 years of stagnation. Mm-hmm. In Ukraine, situation even worse. Uh, Ukraine and Soviet Union were, were uh, richer, was richer than Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, the life standards were higher, uh, 
industry was more developed. It was wonderful universities, uh, cinema uh, production, theaters, literature, and so on. So it was very developed. Uh, one of the most developed, maybe the most developed uh, republic inside Soviet Union. Now, even before conflict, uh, Ukraine became uh, poorer than Russia. And uh, only one indicator. In Russia, especially in Moscow, we have, I don't remember exactly, around 2 million of Ukrainians who are coming here for jobs, immigrants. Mm-hmm. Not Russians going to Kiev, but Ukrainians are going to Moscow because uh, they do not have uh, good jobs in Ukraine. So uh, this is only one indicator. I don't like uh, Russian capitalism. I hate Russian capitalism, I can say. <laughs> yes, uh, but uh, if we compare Russian capitalism and Ukrainian capitalism, I have to say in Russia we have uh, more bureaucracy, but more order and little bit, bit lay better, little, little bit better economic situation than in Ukraine. But uh, generally, it's more or less the same bureaucratic, uh, oligarchic, uh, corrupted uh, system of capitalist relations uh, with element of uh, feudal hierarchy <laughs> in Ukraine, in Russia, and especially in South and some East regions of our countries. So this is prehistory. Why Donbass became sent? So I know they like in, Russia went through like a massive wave of privatization in the 1990s. Did Ukraines also go through like a very similar wave of privatization of industry? Yes, it's true. Yes, uh, Ukraine also had radical system of uh, market, so-called capitalist really, uh, reforms. And privatization was part of this very deep, liberal, destructive changes. I cannot say when the reforms, it was counter-revolution. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, sorry, I just, okay, changes is what I meant. Um, so they also had... They also had very big uh, and very radical privatization uh, of all spheres of economy, like ah. Russia. But uh, uh, in uh, 2010, 15, in Russia started process of uh, bureaucratization of economy. I cannot say even nationalization of enterprises, but growth of bureaucratic control. What is the difference? between nationalization and bureaucratization? You know, in many cases, we have bureaucratic control over private business. They, mm-hmm. It is not nationalized, but bureaucracy had very big power. Ah, okay. Uh, sometimes informal power. And uh, in 1990s, in Russia, uh, private capital was uh, stronger than any political leader. Now, in Russia, situation is opposite. Uh, state, in general, is... Uh, puppet in the hands of uh, capital. It's a bourgeois state. But the state itself is very strong. And if any concrete oligarch, concrete billionaire will decide to make something against the Russian state, he will be punished. He will be in prison. He will go out from Russia and so on. (laughs) So uh, it became more unified, uh, more bureaucratic uh, capitalism than before. In Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian uh, state did not do this. Ah. It is uh, not so, how to say, uh, bureaucratic, but it doesn't mean that it is democratic. Uh, they have uh, more disorder. They don't have more democracy. Of course not. <laughs> so it's the difference between uh, bad bureaucracy and democracy. In Ukraine, uh, okay, I will not go to the details because we don't have time to talk about Donbass and all these events. What is important? So, um, okay, in 2008, the world economy crashed. How did that affect Ukraine? Uh, was it worse? or? Yes, it was uh, in Ukraine, in Russia, everywhere in former Soviet Union. It was a deep recession, even worse than in uh, West European countries. Uh, not big difference, minus 5% typically in the West, uh, up to minus 10% in former Soviet Union. I don't remember exact figures, but uh, it's around minus 10%. Uh, so uh, let's move to the 2014 and this Maidan in Kiev. Can we quickly talk about, I guess, Yanukovych was the president and he was from the Donbass region, right? Uh, Yanukovych, uh, yes, he was uh, also a Ukrainian nationalist. 
But finally, he was interconnected with not only Donbass, but with business uh, more integrated with Russia than with the uh, United States and European Union. Got it. You know, it's not regional division. It's uh, partly a regional division. Uh, yes, in Donbass, more oriented uh, on Russia, in the central and western Ukraine, more to the west. But uh, it's not so simple. It's uh, economic, uh, not uh, geographical uh, difference. So, and Yanukovych was more interconnected with uh, pro-Russian business than other political leaders in Ukraine. And he started negotiations about participation in uh, uh, more deep integration with Russia and other countries of Euro-Asia space. It was very mild steps. It was not creation of new Soviet Union at all. It was only negotiation about um, free trade, Uh, some common rules of uh, trade, uh, common investments. Uh, so very mild uh, first uh, steps uh, for integration with Russia. Ah, okay. Uh, but uh, it was not profitable at all for pro-Western part of uh, business in Ukraine, for pro-Western very liberal uh, political leaders For a big part of intelligence, which was paid directly or indirectly by Western networks, states, and even secret organizations. So, uh, and uh, also it was not, of course, uh, profitable for nationalist forces, which grew up, and I explained why nationalism grew up. And uh, when they made uh, this terrible step, and uh, Bandera and Taza Shoshkevich, Uh, they became uh, so-called national heroes of Ukraine. Uh, I must uh, say it's, they're not heroes, they're cr criminal, of course. But uh, it was created image of them like heroes of Ukraine. Be uh, central prospect became prospect of Bandera. So it's uh, terrible changes. Okay, Bandera prospect maybe later, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. so, uh, and uh, what is important? In Ukraine appeared uh, not only political, but military Nazi groups. It was uh, organized groups with military discipline, with weapons, uh, trained uh, by uh, partly Western, partly internal uh, experts. It was even before Maidan. Ah, okay. Before Maidan. This is important. And uh, in Maidan, uh, this uh, new wave of so-called Orange Revolution, it was not revolution. It was uprising with two parts. Uh, one part is a real negative reaction of ordinary people who were tired from economic uh, difficulties, social inequality, corruption, uh, stupid bureaucracy, and all this stuff. And uh, for them, during decades, official propaganda explains that uh, it's not uh, Ukrainian uh, capitalism, it's not Ukrainian bureaucrats, it's not Ukrainian corrupted officials, but this is all Russian uh, responsibility. So they had this anti-capitalist, anti-bureaucratic, anti-corruption intention and very strong intention, uh, but also mixed with uh, Ukrainian nationalism and anti-Russian ideas. So it was real basis, internal basis, people's basis. But uh, it was it could not be such uprising. Uh, they were not uh, organized. They didn't have uh, weapons and so on. It was supported by uh, Western uh, far right, uh, semi official, semi unofficial organizations, uh, and it was supported by this new nationalist. Uh, I can say troops or military groups, better to say. And uh, they started, uh, not coup d'etat, but they started uh, struggle against pro-Russian bureaucracy and pro-Russian business. So they had the victory. From a uh, point of view of constitution and laws, I'm not specialist in uh, Ukrainian legislation. I think it was illegal, but really, uh, I'm not a big lover of uh, legal or illegal changes of the power. Sometimes uh, people can have power, can took power without legal basis, and it will be very important and progressive. Sometimes uh, fascists uh, can come to power with very legal procedures like Germany. So I'm not a fan of legislation and rules. 
so that's why I think it's not very important. Legal or illegal was victory of, uh, let's say, Maidan forces. But important that uh, they had uh, military support from Nazi, and this is uh, criminal basis. Mm-hmm. They had support from far-right liberal forces in the West, and they had, I must be honest, they had, of course, support of ordinary people who wanted, uh, who had hopes that uh, after Maidan, uh, real democracy, real justice, uh, real honest capitalism, it's, by the way, very typical uh, myth in former Soviet countries that uh, capitalism can be honest. There are a lot of uh, dreams and slogans. We will build honest capitalism. Okay, I, I never saw honest capitalism, but it's another question. So, uh, ordinary Ukrainians also wanted to have this um, honest capitalism and so on. What is important? Slogans of pro-Maidan forces were uh, Ukrainian, uh, had form of Ukrainian nationalism. Mm-hmm. And for Russian-speaking regions, uh, Crimea, uh, Donbass, uh, even Kharkov and some Zaporozhye, all southeast of Ukraine and, of course, Crimea, this uh, Ukrainian nationalism, uh, rehabilitation and heroization of Bandera and pro-Western orientation was uh, economically, politically, culturally, morally impossible. And in 2014... In Donbass, we had a real uprising. Mm-hmm. It was, from one hand, attempt of uh, Donbass uh, political leaders and Donbass uh, big capital mm-hmm. to start uh, independent economic and political behavior. Mm-hmm. But they very quickly betrayed this uh, line. They were afraid to do something radical. Only a few weeks they were against Kiev. But ordinary people started to, to protect their regions, their lives, their kids, their language, their culture, their schools, uh, economy, and so on. Uh, and they didn't want to be part of this Maidan, uh, I don't know, organization. I will use a polite word. So right after the previous uh, Yanukovych fled, I guess there was some, what was this intermediary government and Oh, really, after uh, Maidan, when Yanukovych left Ukraine and uh, step-by-step Poroshenko came to power. Okay, so how, he was a billionaire. So how did he, who, how, what happened there? Uh, it's uh, another story. I'm sorry, I will not comment this because I have, I think, uh, another 10 minutes. We, we, have more than, we already have one hour. And uh, there is an important aspect which I want to stress not to go to the details. So what is important is uh, that people started to protect their uh, regions, their lives, their industries, their schools, their houses, and so on. And uh, new officials in Ukraine, and especially Nazi groups, uh, military troops, military groups, started uh, attack on Donbass. And step by step, uh, they started from uh, military attacks with, uh, I think, uh, machine guns and so on. Then it came artillery, then a system of uh, heavy rockets, uh, airplanes, and so on. And uh, they started real war against uh, peoples of Maidan, of, sorry, of Donbass, in Donetsk and in Lugansk. So they started real war against uh, people who wanted, who didn't want to be part of Ukraine. They, by the way, firstly, they wanted to create their own independent uh, state. And uh, this war continued uh, from 2014, eight years. And it was uh, thousands of victims. Uh, there is a cemetery in uh, Donbass, where 150 kids uh, who were killed by uh, Kiev, and there are names of these kids. There are maybe a lot of others who, whom people didn't find. So it was very bloody operation of uh, Nazi and Ukrainian uh, army, partly, during uh, eight years. Then in Minsk, it was agreement that um, Donbass will have uh, um, some special how to say, uh, opportunities for autonomous development. Autonomy. Yes, autonomy. Uh, 
and uh, with some rights to have their own police. Uh, they have uh, another name, People's Militia. I like mm -hmm. it much more. Uh, they will have their self-management, uh, uh, regional self-management, and so on, uh, economic uh, independence. Uh, but uh, Kiev never agreed with this. Uh, they were uh, trying to attack, not, not to attack, but to destroy process of negotiations all time. Mm -hmm. And uh, finally, the situation became extremely say, intensive. And before uh, beginning of so-called, uh, I don't know even how, how to say, so when uh, officially Russia started uh, special military operation. Uh, but uh, I'm not a big uh, lover of military forms of salvation of international contradictions. Uh, but from another side, it's necessary to understand that Ukrainian army and Nazi groups were ready to attack Donbass. And they were attacking Donbass for eight years. So this is maybe the end of prehistory. Uh, I'm sorry we agreed that today we will talk uh, only about prehistory of this situation and about all these important uh, historical aspects. And I wanted to stress uh, this point. And I will not go to the details of modern situation. Oh, no, we, we don't. Uh, we're a historical podcast, so we don't need the modern situation yet because we want people to understand where things started. So anything else you would like to say about either Ukraine, Russia, the U. Oh, actually, let's talk a little bit about um, imperialism and the U.S. and its relationship. So I will be brief because uh, I promised and you promised to have one hour talk. Even with some uh, corrections, it will be much more. So uh, first, uh, I want to say that salvation of the contradiction uh, in Donbass, uh, and not only in Donbass, uh, can be only on the basis of movement towards socialism. Mm -hmm. It's not abstract propaganda. Mm -mm. It is not uh, abstract slogan which is unrealistic. Mm -hmm. It is a realistic uh, and only possible solution. Mm -hmm. Because for military-industrial complexes, for capital, big capital, for bureaucrats, to have uh, real integration of the people, or real justice, to have real uh, democratic, uh, not formal, but real democratic salvation of contradictions, which are now very deep. You must understand, uh, many thousands of people uh, are killed in Donbass, in Ukraine, so it's not simple. Sons, daughters, uh, grandfathers, mothers, people are killed, and uh, this is not simple to solve such contradiction. And only if people will understand, we are starting another economic, social, political life with another ideology, ideology of internationalism, not one or another nationalism. Only on this basis it's possible to solve such contradictions. It's possible to have peace, uh, but it will be peace for maybe a few months, maybe a few years, but not forever. And then it will be new threat of new war, new victims, new killings, and so on. So this is first. Second, I want to stress, and it was stressed even by Rome Pope, Papa Rimsky, that Papa Rimsky, Vatican leader, Pope. Oh, oh the, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, sometimes I can make mistakes in the pronunciation of words which I you used uh, not very often. So even he said that uh, it was a lot of provocations for military conflict uh, from NATO countries, from United States especially. And uh, I want to stress that there is one point uh, which is not in the, which is not question of capitalism or socialism, but which is question of modern type of capitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, in modern global world, a few years ago, or until maybe 2008, 2014, uh, United States and NATO were the only dominating force. Mm -hmm. They were policemen, world policemen. Mm -hmm. One time in the big international conference, uh, socialist conference in, the, in New York, I said, it's killer cop and uh, huge hole upload. 
but it was cop, killer cop, but cop, who was the only cop. But during last years, first of all, China became so strong that China said, I'm not now under the supervision of this killer cop. Mm-hmm. I will abstain in big international conflicts, and now China is abstain, but I will not be the slave of United States and uh, NATO. Mm-hmm. And the Russian officials um, said more, first in Syria, now in other spheres. Mm-hmm. Russian officials said, we want to be also subject of international relations. Mm-hmm. Not object, not object of determined by United States, but subject active uh, actor, active actor, not passive uh, slave. Ah, okay, active subject as opposed to passive object. And of course, for United States and NATO, this is terrible challenge. Mm-hmm. And they must uh, punish, or so-called punish, Russia and to show to everybody you must be our slaves. Mm-hmm. Or you will be punished. Or you are punished. With Russia, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't like uh, military forms of salvation of contradictions and so on. But this is important aspect of so-called geopolitical contradictions. And coming back to the my main idea, not my, I think it's yours and all progressive people. If we don't change uh, capitalist basis uh, in all over the world, I will not talk about China, but in Russia we have also semi-feudal capitalism uh, with uh, a lot of bureaucratic uh, deformations. In the uh, United States, uh, we have terrible social injustice and domination of rich capital. I mean, there is, I would say it is, I mean, we have over 2 million people in prison. And literally, the U.S. government uses their labor, which is slave labor, to make weapons. So it's, uh, again, uh, I said it's nearly everywhere, even in so-called uh, social democratic Europe, uh, there are more and more conflicts and uh, contradictions, inequality and so on. And if we continue to go in the direction of regress, capitalist uh, regress uh, is uh, trip, or not trip, it's road to the feudalism. And we have growth of feudalism, growth of nationalism, Nazi. We have growth of semi-fascism and direct fascism, pro-fascist forces in Europe, in United States, in different countries. In Ukraine, it's open. In many countries in the third world, in periphery. So now we have period of regress of mankind. And in this period, it's extremely important to talk about socialism and the road towards socialism as a real alternative. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to stress, uh, by the way, uh, positive experience of some countries in Latin America. I'm not a specialist at all in Latin America, but they have victories in spite of fascist coups, in spite of the terrible from the United States. Bolivia is a fantastic example of that. Yeah, it's Bolivia, it's uh, some other countries. Uh, Cuba is still... Uh, Uh, supporting socialist uh, trend, uh, Venezuela has difficult but uh, contradictory but struggle for socialism, uh, and some other countries where left governments uh, are coming to power. Uh, are, well, Colombia recently elected um, their very first leftist leader, and even before he came to power, he reopened. He he, he basically told the United States, "We are not your." I don't know, mercenaries. So, yeah, Colombia just has, uh, now it's Colombia too. Yes. Honduras, I think, also has now left uh, president, if I'm not mistaken, and so on. Mm -hmm. So, uh, this optimistic uh, trend, I think, is important, and let's think about this more and more. Thank you so much. Thank you, friends. Thank you for your work, uh, for the dialogue. It's very important. And thank you to listeners. Uh, if they like it, I'm very glad. Goodbye. Thank you so much. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K 
T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.